Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Governor Malloy's Second Chance Society aims to help juvenile and adult offenders, but recently Connecticut's chief state's attorney wrote an op-ed laying out why he believes recent reforms are causing some juveniles to take advantage of the system. Kevin Kane will join us later to explain, and we'll also hear from the public defender's office, who disagrees with Kane's assertions. That's later. First, while boys predominantly make up the number of juvenile delinquents in Connecticut, roughly 23, 23% of girls were admitted into the state's juvenile justice system in 2016. That's data from the state's judicial branch. What programs exist in the state for delinquent girls and their needs? We'll be looking at a new report that asks girls involved in the juvenile justice system about how the system treats them and what kinds of reforms they think should be implemented. And we'll hear from a national expert about ways Connecticut and other states can design systems to be more responsive to girls. Now, do you have experience in the juvenile justice system? Does your daughter? What's working or not working? We want to hear from you too this hour. 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Now, I want to welcome into the studio Abby Anderson, Executive Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Abby, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Uh, for people who may not know about your organization, tell us about uh, what CJJA does. Sure. The Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance is a statewide public policy and advocacy organization. Our mission is to end the criminalization of children. So we do that in a couple ways. One is just narrowing the funnel of any kid that comes in. And then we want to make sure for kids who do come into the juvenile justice system that it's safe, fair, and effective. Uh, one of the reasons we're talking about the juvenile justice system and girls within it uh, is because your organization's hosting an all-day forum about this very topic at the state capitol tomorrow. And we're going to have information on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, but let's talk about what um, you've been working on recently. And that's a report where you're not just talking about girls in the juvenile justice system, but you're actually talking to them. What are they telling you? Yeah, so it's really important. You know, we got this grant from the National Girls Initiative to look at how can we involve girls more in policymaking and advocacy. And, you know, we'll, we'll admit we had sort of fallen into that trap of talking about and thinking we had the answers instead of talking directly to people who are personally involved who have had this experience. So we reached out and, and started talking to girls. And one of the first girls we talked to in a focus group said something to us that really took us aback. She said, you come here and talk to us. You'll take your notes. You'll go away and we'll never hear from you again. We're used to it. And it made us realize that even when we do talk to girls, it can be very transactional in one way. Um, so we really wanted to take a look at, at what does it mean to get girls completely involved and have them um, have an ongoing conversation and really move back and forth. And our, our colleagues over at the Center for Children's Advocacy have a program called Youth Speak, uh, called Speak Up, which is a youth-led advocacy program. And they had a great experience. We were able to subcontract with them. It's about a 10- or 12-week two-hour um, youth advocacy training. And, and the young women talked about the things they wanted, things like um, profiles of foster families so they know when they're going. You know, I'm Puerto Rican. Do they only eat Italian food? You know, can we talk about that? Can I have my cat? You know, those kinds of things that I think as, as policy folks, sometimes we get um, baked on sort of the big issues. And what we heard from girls is, you know, 
the voice that they don't have and the choices that they don't get to make, as simple as, you know, sometimes we hear from from young, oh, I don't like the food in that program. I don't like the food. And to me, I'll admit, first time I come, you know, I sort of roll my eyes like, oh, I don't like the food until actually Fran Sherman and, and those kinds of people who's going to be joining us later helped me understand, you know, Abby, you get to decide what you're having for breakfast, if you're having cereal or eggs or and and that gives you some control of your own being and how you feel. And when, you know, the girls were saying, it's not even so much that I don't get to choose what I'm eating, but when I'm eating, you know, breakfast is at eight, lunch is at 12, um, dinner's at six. What if I'm hungry at three? You know, what do I do then? Um, So really trying to understand that when we're working with young women and and boys as well, but we're focusing on, on women on this at this point, how do we make sure that we aren't stifling and um, and beating down instead of really trying to create environments that are therapeutic and rehabilitative because the end goal is to um, help these young women become the best that they can be for for themselves but also for our communities and you know on the on the the most basic level to not reoffend again you know and doing that if we help them become their full selves and have some empowerment and have some agency, they're much more likely to see that they can be engaged full members of community instead of people who are acted upon. I mentioned at the start of the show that in 2016, 23% of youth involved in the state's juvenile justice system were girls. Can you give us more of a a more defined snapshot of these women? Who are they? And what are the, I guess, the offenses that they commit that put them in the system in the first place? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question because I think just generally when people think of the juvenile justice system, they're thinking, you know, oh, these are hardened, horrible kids and um, and some of the stereotypes about the juvenile justice system are true. If you're thinking that most people in the system, most kids in the system are kids of color, that is certainly true. Um, and I want to be very clear that that all of the research shows that's not because kids of color are committing more crimes or are just um, worse than white kids. There's a lot of discrepancy, a lot of disparity um, you know, institutionalized racism, systemic racism built into these systems. So that's something we're really trying to address. And we see that with girls. Um, you know, um, black girls are much more likely to, to come into the system and, and have worse outcomes when they do come in. What's really interesting generally for the juvenile justice system is the things that kids are coming into the system for tend to be misdemeanors, tend to be things like school fights, those kinds of things. We're starting to get better at that, but it's still, you know, you know remember in Connecticut, we still have transfer position provision so that if you commit a really serious crime, you're going to the adult system. Um, so when you look at the girls, it was really fascinating, girls making up 23% of the system, but the bulk of those those girls are coming in for things like, like family with service needs, so truancy, um, but then also they're coming in for, for um, violations and uh, misdemeanors. So it is more of these these minor offenses. Again, we don't want these behaviors to happen. We're not saying they're okay, um, but there are more minor offenses that are that are happening that girls are coming into the system for. This is where we live today. We're looking at the juvenile justice system and the girls involved in the system here in Connecticut. It's the focus of a new report called the Girls Report. It's uh, through the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance, also with a uh, partnership with the uh, Center for Children's Advocacy, also here in Connecticut. In studio with me, Abby Anderson, Executive Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. And joining us uh, by phone now is Francine Sherman, clinical professor 
professor at Boston College Law School. She's one of the speakers uh, tomorrow at this forum at the state capitol. Francine, welcome to the show. Thank you. We just heard Abby mention that in Connecticut, um, girls of color are more likely to be involved in the juvenile justice system. When we look at it nationally, tell us who are these girls? You know, it's interesting. The Connecticut report is... um, a terrific specific example of what's going on around the country. So um, girls around the country are arrested and and largely girls of color are being arrested, detained, and ultimately incarcerated for misdemeanors, violations of probation, in-home assaults, for behaviors that arise directly out of sort of early trauma. And, you know, what we do know about girls in the justice system is they've sort of experienced overwhelming amounts of trauma in their homes before entry. They then go into the child welfare system. They can fail in the child welfare system, multiple foster homes, which is a lot of what the girls in this report talk about, multiple transitions, don't do much to kind of support them. And then when they pick up any kind of minor delinquency offense, they get pushed into the juvenile justice system. It's what we sort of call failing up into greater levels of restriction. And then in the juvenile justice system, essentially, the idea is how do we fix them rather than how do we work with them and cultivate leadership and positive development. Um, and so really, you know, the the report, you know, when I read it, I was saying to um, to Abby and to the folks who did it that this is a great example, a very specific example of what a developmental approach is all about. And that's really the direction policy is going in nationally. Uh, when we look at the juvenile justice system here in Connecticut and also nationwide, boys make up the bulk of, of the ones that are adjudicated delinquent. So uh, are you seeing in the system that uh, the, the court workers or the community providers are really uh, approaching uh, both boys and girls um, just as, as youth that need extra support and they're not differentiating that these boys might need something a little bit different than this girl here? Well, I think there's that, and I also just think there's structural um, inequities. So girls enter the system for things that boys wouldn't enter the system for. Girls fail on probation, right, or are sort of made to fail on probation because the expectations for them are different than they are for boys. Um, Girls, we find the data shows that girls are violated on probation for technical offenses, not for new crime, but for disobeying rules like curfew or um, attending school without incident, these kinds of things, at higher rates than boys. So our expectations for girls are different, and we built into the system sort of punishment for failing to meet those unfair expectations. And, and what are the long-term consequences? Uh, I know the percentage changes in the terms of if once a child is involved in the juvenile justice system, they're more likely to then end up in an adult facility after 18. What are we seeing uh, specifically when it, we're talking about girls? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the issues that um, sort of create the environment for girls to offend and to get into trouble in the juvenile justice system, right? Uh, instability in their homes, lack of community support and family support, early trauma. Um, these things aren't changed by putting them into the juvenile justice system, right? It's all about the context in which they're living. And those things aren't affected when they're put in the juvenile justice system. The juvenile justice system typically around the country is not about what it ought to be about. It ought to be about how do we cultivate healthy female leaders? 
It's not. It's about treatment. It's about fixing them. It's not looking at who they are, what their capacities are, and trying to build on those capacities. And so what we find around the country is young women who have sort of graduated out of the juvenile justice system are in homeless shelters, are in adult prisons. They're trying to figure out how to be adults. They're trying to figure out who they are. They didn't learn the right lessons through the juvenile justice system. In fact, they learned just the opposite, which is what this report really talks about. I want to go back to Abby Anderson with the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Uh, what are the supports that are in place here in Connecticut, again, for a child that ends up before a judge and needs to get some type of, of consequence for uh, something that they, they did? What are the alternatives, the options for them? So I think it's important to, to mention that the Connecticut juvenile justice system nationally is pretty well regarded and seen as, as a place that is progressive and moving forward. And, and I think generally speaking, right, I'm an advocate, so we're never going to be happy. It's, it's, um, it's in my DNA, right? But I can say we have made tremendous strides and done a lot of good things, and the people at the Court Support Services Division and DCF have really focused on, on these issues. So there are a lot of things where there are trainings and things like Girls Circle and where, um, you know, there are gender-specific probation officers who are trained and, and have caseloads that are solely for young women. It's an interesting paradox we're facing now in the state, right, because we've done such a good job of, of getting those numbers low, right? So I think we had 43 girls committed delinquent last year, which is committed delinquent basically is, is the deepest end, so, so going to prison. Um, I think it was around 380 girls who went to detention. It's a small number. That's fantastic, except it also means that now these systems, you know, Fran talked about structural issues. These systems now say, well, we don't have the economies of scale to be able to have programs specific to girls anymore. Like we did such a good job that now maybe it has to be co-ed or maybe it just doesn't exist at all. So now when the girls actually need services – we kind of can't afford to do it because we can't have the economies of scale. And and so we really need to stop thinking about the system as a system and as an intervention, right? How do we create individualized service programs for each kid? And instead of saying, well, I need six kids to fit into this six-slot program, well, those six kids don't need the same thing necessarily. And um, maybe you don't need to have a million-dollar program that's going to serve 12 kids over the course of the year. Maybe you need to take that. Maybe it's only $500,000, and you can wrap things around kids and families and supports. But that's, it's a huge system shift. I know we're going to talk about you know, CJTS and incarceration later. It's this, the same thing that's happening for girls is what we need to do for boys. Not saying that girls and boys are the same, but both need individualized plans that fit exactly what's going on for them not what a system has been able to create, frankly, for itself to function, not necessarily for the young people. You mentioned that the numbers have gone down. When we talk about uh, maybe a child that can't go home for whatever reason, um, there are out-of-home placements or community support, um, residential homes. How have we seen those numbers change over the recent year? They've, they've gone down a lot if you look over the last five years. And, and one of the things, right, is that the, the Department of Children and Families is, is in charge both of child protection, mental health, and, and juvenile justice. And the commissioner, which we, uh, you know, who we agree with on this, has really looked at how do we have fewer kids in out-of-home placement, right? And so, again, so a lot of those um, have gone away. And for the most part, those, those are good things. The question that we have always is, so what are we doing instead, 
what does it look like? How do you increase the supports around those young women? So there are legitimately young women who need placement out of home, um, even if it's just for a short period of time. And so there are some great programs in Connecticut for that. We also find, again, we come up against this economy of scale thing. So a girl might end up in a program um, that was created for one population, but we also have these extra few girls, so so they they go where there's a bed. Um, and you know we we have a great relationship with with a bunch of the providers and and around. And I think people are doing the best they can um, with the tools they have, and they care. Everybody cares deeply about this population. It's figuring out how how do we shift the the system to be where our brains want to be. Um, and uh, I think our listeners are probably aware of the the tiny little budget issue that we're facing in the state. <laughs> Minor, tiny. I think I think we'll solve it overnight. Um, and that is really playing into this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so one of the things that that we really feel like is is an important thing is is humanizing these young women because you know we sometimes get questions about well what, you know why do you invest in in quote unquote these kids you know and and one of the things we talk about is the fact that. You know, as as Fran mentioned, the trauma is something you can't you can't under um, you can't sell too hard, right? These the the young women who come um, into the system, especially the ones that get further and further in, as we said, the system has done a great job of shrinking, and so kids who never really needed to be there are more out than ever before. They're they're just not in the system. Therefore, the kids who get in are the are the complex kids. We find they tend to be kids who have been involved with the child welfare system. For years, you know, Fran, Fran talked about early trauma. It, it's it's early trauma. It's consistent trauma. It's chronic trauma. You know, I think you know, huge percentage of of the girls in the justice system have had have been sexually abused, um, physical and emotional abuse. You know, homelessness. Uh, a recent survey found that forty percent of the girls in detention um, identified somewhere on the LGBTQ GNC continuum. Um, so a lot of these kids are getting kicked out of their homes because of who they are. And then trying to figure these things out or their behaviors are a direct result of trauma. Um, so these are issues where, you know, sometimes we talk about when there's a lot of cuts, police or schools end up having to be social workers or do things they weren't designed to do. And I think that's happening a little bit with the juvenile justice system as well. Other systems have gotten frustrated, but this isn't really a criminal issue to begin with. So, of course, the juvenile justice system is having a hard time solving it. Uh, Francine Sherman, I'll go back to you. We just heard uh, Abby talking about, you know, a majority of these girls having um, some type of, of trauma in their lives that may lead to certain behaviors that get them expelled from school or uh, they, they're they in frequent fights. Um, as Abby mentioned, Connecticut's often seen as a leader in reforms of both its juvenile justice and uh, adult criminal justice system. Well, what can Connecticut be doing differently to, to move this forward for the benefit of the, these children? You know, it's, um, I'm so glad Abby talked about how Connecticut is regarded nationally because she's absolutely correct. You know, Connecticut is definitely regarded as a leader and, and actually has an opportunity now to really lead, um, in terms of what they do with girls and, and show, you know, the rest of the country what, what the possibilities are here. There are a few forces at work nationally and in Connecticut and they're kind of happening at the same time and it's kind of a perfect storm in a way, in a good way. It creates opportunity. So the system is shrinking. There's no question about it. And um, Abby mentioned 43 committed girls last year. That's a small number. And if you think about that, it's perfect in the sense that you could really wrap your arms around it and create something different. Uh, Connecticut also has a strong network of providers, of 
of folks that are well-established, thoughtful, and have long histories of providing services to youth, both in the child welfare and the juvenile justice system. And they stand ready to fill this space. Um, in addition, there's a lot of research now about what works. We know so much more now than we knew 20 years ago about what works for youth who have trauma backgrounds, for girls in particular. And then, you know, the economics, the reality is what Abby was alluding to were, was essentially individualized wraparound services, and that is a more economical approach than building facilities and locking kids up, period. It just costs less. So this, there is a way to do this that is smart, effective, and won't cost as much as the old way of doing business. Um, it, what the reality here is that when, you, when systems shrink, as Connecticut has, then the girls who are in, who are committed, are the toughest cases. They are, because the easier cases got pushed back out into the community already. They're the hardest cases. They're the most complex, and so they really have to um, be treated in an individual way. And, in fact, that's the history of the juvenile justice system. The reason juvenile justice is different than criminal justice is because juvenile justice was intended to be individualized. It wasn't about the offense. It was about the offender. You know, you look at each youth and you say, okay, what do they need? How can we help them be the best healthy adult they can be? And that's really where Connecticut needs to go here. You have numbers for girls that, that allow you to do it. And, in fact, girls can sort of, um, you know, pave the way for boys in the sense that once we put the systems in place, the wraparound services, then, then we can bring sort of the boys into this kind of approach as well. well Francine, we'll have to leave it there. Again, uh, Francine Sherman, clinical professor at Boston College Law School. She'll be the keynote speaker tomorrow at the state capitol on a forum focused on girls in Connecticut's juvenile justice system. Francine, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. After the break, we're going to hear from a youth about her experience. Now, are you a community provider that works with teens who are involved in the juvenile justice system? How can it, in Connecticut, improve the way it helps youth, especially girls? You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Today we're talking about girls involved in juvenile justice and how the state responds to them. In studio with me, Abby Anderson, Executive Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. CJJA, along with the Center for Children's Advocacy, interviewed girls within the state's juvenile justice system, and we're talking about their report today. Our next guest understands this system firsthand. Ileana Pujols is a young woman who um, has some experience, again, with Connecticut's juvenile justice system. She has joined us in studio. Ileana, welcome to where we live. Hi, thank you. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Where'd you grow up and uh, what caused you to get involved in, in the juvenile justice system here in Connecticut? Okay, so I am originally from West Haven. I grew up in West Haven with my mom and my little brothers. Um, growing up, I guess everything was pretty good. Um, everything went pretty good for a while. Uh, my mom used to, she was on drugs a lot at one point. So I guess that kind of caused me to act out a little bit. Um, I have a really bad, long history of fighting as a juvenile. Um, since I've been 18, I have not had any charges, though, so that's good. I am. I, I was in a program that was provided for me once I was in, on probation that I went to for the last two years of my high school, which actually like turned my life around completely. went really good for me. Tell us about that program. Um, so I went to a program called Passages. 
great program. Um, they were probably the best thing that happened to me during high school. I, when I got expelled from high school, I got expelled for a fight. When I had got expelled, they didn't even ask me my side of the story, kind of like left me alone, you know, just automatically expelled me. So probation gave me the option to go one of two schools, which was either Passages or New Horizons, which are both New Haven schools. When I went to Passages, they literally like, they helped me get everything done, everything done. I was supposed to technically still be a sophomore when I started there. I was only there for two years. My last, my senior year, they helped me do like 13, 14 credits in a year. So I kind of like, they had me on the right track. They helped me with a lot of things, not only school-wise, um, family-wise, anything down to like, if I needed to have a deep conversation with one of them, I could get up in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, call them and listen like, hey, I need help. I don't know what to do. Like such and such is going on. Can you direct me in the right way? And they do it. Like they helped me a lot. So now, before you got to that point where you ex- when you were expelled from high school, mm-hmm. are there other ways that educators or the guidance counselor or anyone could have helped you? Because you said you were acting out a lot and you were you were getting into fights. No, I I skipped school. Like I used to go to school probably for like the first four or five periods. Um, once I got into my first fight at the end of my freshman year, because my whole freshman year I cheered. I cheered and I was on honor roll my whole freshman year. I took um, honor classes. I was really, really good in school. Once I got into my first fight, I started skipping class a lot. And they kind of seen me as, oh, she's never here. She skips class, so we're not really going to help her. You know, they I feel like they put a lot of their main focus on the kids that were on the right track because they were so, you know, their priority was to get those kids out the door with the best education, make sure that they go to college, you know, all that. They didn't really care for the kids who skipped, care for the kids who were expelled, you know. It, it was kind of like sending us, expelling us and suspending us was like the easier route for them. Mm-hmm. So mo- most of the times they were like, you know, you could just go home, stay suspended for a certain amount of days, just come back. I would skip. I have security guards telling me how to skip, where to go, what hallway to go down, you know. It's kind of like they just give up. Mm-hmm. And they're just like, you know, do whatever you want, whatever. Just hurry up and get out of the school. Can I ask what high school you went to? Wilbercross. Now, Abby, uh, you're in studio with us as well, Abby Anderson with Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Um, how uh, typical is Ileana's story? And in, on one side, um, you can see why school administrators would decide to expel a student who was being disruptive and getting into constant fights. But it doesn't mean that that is a solution in terms of Ileana's life and what happens to her when she's not in school anymore. So can we talk about you know what causes, um, how schools can respond to students differently if they can Yeah, I mean, I think there has been some movement. And unfortunately, Ileana's um, story is is not new. It's not one I'm I'm listening to with um, amazement and shock. Um, But I think one of the things I need to um, to honor Alice Forrester down at Clifford Beers in in New Haven, who taught me to look at things um, when you look at trauma to say, you know, a lot of times we look at young people and we might look at Ileana and go, what's the matter with you? Mm-hmm. You know, why are you getting into fights? And and Alice really taught me to say instead, it's what happened to you? Right? What's going on? Right? You've been an honor student. You've been cheering, you know, so you, you've been on this path. You were going to be, you know, our marquee kid. What happened? Right? To really sit down and have that conversation. Where is this fighting coming from? What's going on? And And I think there's some movement, you know, in terms of restorative justice and and circling up and, and having those kinds of conversations, um, you know, I think schools get put in a tough position because they're really supposed to just get the scores, get the scores, get the scores. And there's not an understanding that, um, you know, I was listening to a, an interview yesterday on the radio and somebody was talking about how Houston's going to have to really focus on 
when kids go back to school, dealing with the trauma first so that they're in a headspace to be able to learn. And that's just true every single day. Just because kids haven't gone through a hurricane, um, you have no idea what's going on in a kid's home or what in a kid's life. Um, and and a lot of times, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna tell you that. You know, I'm sure when when you were in middle school, or early high school, you weren't going and saying, "Hey, you know what? My mom's on drugs. I'm really struggling. I'm trying to help out with my younger siblings, and it's really stressful." Mm-hmm. You know, you're not gonna share that, of course. And I guess they they kind of expect you to like if you're going through something like that. I didn't mean to cut you off, but they expect you to just throw it out there, like like you're you're willing to just put all your business out there for these people who don't even care. Mm. So it was like it wasn't. Now, Ileana, you mentioned that passages really helped you. It's because it was that one-on-one interaction with you that you felt like someone actually cared about you. Would it, having a mentor have helped you before you were expelled from high school? Um. That's a hard question. I wish that I had a close relationship with somebody that was at Wilbercross. Um, at one point, I was really close with my cheer coach, but I also, you know, she kind of like let go of me as the time went by as well. But um, passages, they it was easy to build a bond with them and they understood everything, every aspect of everything. I've never had nobody. At, I can say not one teacher at Wilbercross knows my whole life story and it did not take passages long to get that life story out of me because they sit down and they understand they want to listen they actually care about the information you're giving them back when they ask you questions it's not just like oh they're asking you they're writing it down putting it in a file and never thinking about it again uh, like again they they check up on me on, on a regular how's your mother how's your brothers how's everything going with this situation you know they, they actually care for how their students are doing you know if we're not in school they'll make sure they'll, they'll pop up at your house and make sure like hey why aren't you coming to school you know you can come even though it's late. It's 10 o'clock. You're supposed to be there at 8. That's fine. We'll take you back to the school now. You know, you could come in for the late day. You could do it. At Cross, if you were there past your second period, they want to send you home. Like, you don't even have the opportunity to come inside and finish your day. Like, it wasn't like that at Passages. Even if you only came for two, three periods, they take that better than you not coming at all. And I think we talked earlier about systems, right? School systems, Wilbercross or any other high school. Let's not pick on them as the only ones, right? This, this happens everywhere. Um, that's not what they're set up to do. They're not set up to have these one-on-one. And they also have, if it's anything, I, you know, I live in Bridgeport and I know the schools in Bridgeport are like over-enrolled by like 25%, right? So they're like, hey, if half of, if, if 25% of the kids don't show up in a day, maybe we're not going to go find them because if they showed up, I don't have seats. I don't have teachers, you know? So um, that luxury of be able, being able to do one-on-one, we need to figure out the system so that mm-hmm. schools can do those things. Now, Ileana, tell us about uh, what you're doing today and what's happening with Passages. Um, Passages is no longer up and running, even though I wish it was. I am currently working, though. My plan is to, I did graduate high school, so they did get me, they got me out of high school, which is great. Thank you. Um, Only reason I did not go straight to college is because of, obviously, personal reasons at home. Uh, My mother is a single mother. I have a four-year-old brother and a 13-year-old brother that, my 13-year-old brother actually was at Domus. He knows Christine. Um, He's actually, he went to Clifford Beards, too. Wonderful help. They're great help over there. Um, so I help uh, help a lot with them. I am working full time. I actually just got my promotion at Cricket Wireless, so I am now the assistant manager there. Thank you. <laughs> I'm planning to go to school for EMT. Only thing is I have to situate everything with my license because apparently I can't get in there without at least my permit, which kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. But So that's kind of like my plan. Um, if that ever goes downhill, my backup is I really want to do 911 dispatch. So if EMT doesn't work out, I kind of have like a backup plan. Um, I mean... Not everybody prefers college and everybody likes college. I find it not really my preference because I look at college more like I would probably go for the experience versus the education. 
So, like I said, EMT was kind of like my way out of there. Um, but I've been I've been good. I haven't gotten in trouble, staying out of trouble, you know, helping my mom a lot. I stay in contact with passages 24-7. It's like my family, so. So it sounds like your life's on track, and we're yep. glad to hear that, Ileana. Uh, but Ileana mentioned that passages is no longer. So, again, it goes back to as the, the numbers decrease, programs are getting closed by the state. What are the alternatives if passages isn't there to help someone like Ileana, Abby Anderson? You know, there are some there are some other programs out there and, and alternative education programs and alternative um, programming. And I do. I think, you know, Fran Sherman earlier made a great point about the opportunities. And I think we are in such a period of transition and such a period of, of crisis in terms of the budget, really looking at what works, how do we do it better. And I think, you know, one of the things we're really trying to, to talk about is the alliance is really getting a groundswell. You know, um, if it's only advocates that are talking about this, um, we can't do it by ourselves. You know, and communities need to really stand up and say, how do we protect and value our, our young people? You know, you look at what an incredible resource um, Ileana is, what a credible gift to the, to the community. Um, and we could have lost that, you know, and, and if not about what's in it personally for Ileana, right, if that's not what, what motivates you. What's in it for the community? We talk about, you know, we need to, how do we keep young people in Connecticut? How do we build our tax base? How do we keep people from moving away? And it's, we need to support and make sure that, that people know and young people know we want you here. You are a valuable part of our community and creating the programs and services and talking to people like Ileana and saying, okay, we're trying to create programs. Tell us how. You know, you know better than, than academics what young people need. And Ileana, we got to go to break, but go ahead. I just wanted to say one more thing because a lot of people think that when they take out the programs that um, it doesn't affect anything. It does. We had a lot of kids at our program that got snatched out um, unwillingly because of their district not wanting to provide the funds or whatever the case may be. We have students who have died. We have students who have now been in jail because they have been taken out of our, our school. We have a lot of students that went downhill a lot once they left the school and they're like these are students that would only come to passages, would only come and deal with those teachers because they were like that. So for them to snatch something like that from kids, it's like that's something that they really shouldn't do. Because once you build a bond with somebody, it's really hard to build a bond with another person. It's not really. Well, I want to thank Ileana Pujols, actually, a young woman who has some experience with Connecticut's juvenile justice system. But your life is on track now, and we really appreciate you sharing a little bit of your experience with us, Ileana. Thank you. I appreciate you having me today. Now, Abby Anderson's also here in studio, executive director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. We're talking about this topic today. It's the focus of the Girls Report. It's a new report by the CJJA, and it's the focus of a forum tomorrow at the state capitol about how Connecticut can improve the way it responds to girls involved in the juvenile justice system. More information on that event on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Now coming up, Connecticut's chief state's attorney will join us to talk about some negative consequences he believes is tied to some of the reforms we've seen in Connecticut. And we'll hear from the Office of Public Offender too, a public defender rather. You can join the conversation 860-275-7266.
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about girls involved in Connecticut's juvenile justice system, but we're shifting to a discussion of recent reforms. And uh, we'll hear from one state official who sees some negative consequences to how Connecticut is treating juvenile delinquents. Joining us in studio now is Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. He recently wrote an op-ed in the Hartford Current titled, Emboldened Juveniles Endanger the Public. And he cited examples of youth who are taking advantage of the laws. Kane says these youth are aware the system has an inability to hold them accountable for their actions. Uh, Chief State's Attorney again, Kevin Kane, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me. So let's talk a little bit about that op-ed. Uh, what uh, prompted you to write it? And tell us what you're seeing in your position um, within the criminal justice system here in Connecticut. Well, I suppose what, what prompted me was, was just a series of incidents, and, and finally the last few were like the straws that broke the camel's back, where we're having, we've done a lot of very good things with juvenile justice reform, and, and a lot of the goals are very important and, and excellent. I think it's time that we sit down and look at everything we've done and the consequences of some of those things and reevaluate some of them. And particularly what we're concerned about here is the serious incidents we've had, particularly most obvious with these young kids who are stealing cars, uh, frequently stealing cars, repetitively being referred to the juvenile court, uh, not being detained, being out and doing it again, some while they're on probation, some while their case is pending, and fleeing from the police. And during the course of the flight uh, or fleeing otherwise and and during the course of the incident killing somebody or getting into a collision and and causing serious physical injury to somebody, Uh, leading the police on high-speed pursuits where the police feel a need for public safety to to stop the car. They're unable to do it. Mm -hmm. The two things are happening. The police are unable to detain them until they appear in court because of some of the restrictions on the statutes that I think can be loosened up in a fair and balanced way. And the second thing is some of these cases, because of the repeated conduct and the, the, the lack of, of uh, structured and, and, and uh, supervised and ability to confine people uh, while they are dangerous and need to be, have the public be protected from them, uh, we can't get them transferred to the adult court where we could do that. So you're talking about um, consequences since Connecticut first raised the age law and implemented by 2012? I'm not talking so much about that because I think the raise the age law to include 16 and 17-year-olds was a very good idea. And a lot of good things have come from that. We've reduced arrests. We've eliminated a lot of the school-based arrests. We've looked to other services and providers to provide services to these kids that we couldn't do in the criminal justice system. The two problems we've had are really more recent. It was the recent changes to the detention law, which narrowed the grounds too much. Uh, It provided too strict uh, of a ground for the judge or the police to detain somebody until they appear in court and and continued uh, uh, restrictions on judges ability to issue detentions orders while the cases are pending. Now I want to go ahead. That's part of it. And the second thing is with regard to the more serious cases, uh, we used to be able to transfer them to the adult court on a selective basis, those cases we felt needed to. Now uh, one of the changes made in the statute really uh, make it practically almost impossible to transfer a case under the discretionary transfer section to the adult court. 
And I wanted to bring into the discussion someone who handles uh, the delinquency side, and that's uh, Chris Rapillo. She's the uh, acting deputy chief at the Office of Public Defender. Uh, Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, one of the reasons we asked you to come on, you were also the Office's Director of Delinquency Defense and Child Protection Services for a while. Um, can you talk about some of the concerns that the Chief State's Attorney, Kevin Kane, is raising? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, we've all seen the terrible incidents that have been in the press, but I don't think it's indicative of a problem with the reforms in Connecticut. Police can detain kids. They have to get a court order. It's been like that for a number of years, so it, it's certainly not impossible for a young person to be placed in detention upon arrest. And, and I don't think that the changes that happened in January, I mean, it did narrow it, but the goal of those changes was to keep kids who really are being arrested because of mental health issues or behavioral health incidents out of the detention center. I mean, the grounds for detention are still, if the child poses a threat to public safety, they can be detained. That's the language right out of the statute. And, and with response to the issues with the juvenile transfer, I mean, it is true that you know, there now has to be hearings. Back when we initially changed juvenile transfer, um, it was very easy for kids to be transferred. There didn't need to be a hearing. A prosecutor could just make a motion and a child could be transferred to adult court. There now has to be a hearing where a judge has to make a determination that it's best for the kid in the community that that young person be taken out of the juvenile court and moved to adult court. As far as whether it's impossible or not, we were able to look at some data from fiscal 17 just for kids who were represented by the public defender's office. Um, there were a total of 95 kids transferred from juvenile court to the adult court. I was able to determine that at least 11 of those were discretionary transfers, including two that appeared to be car cases. Uh, it's probably a little bit higher than 11 because our data is not foolproof and there's a few where I, I can't tell what the charges are. So there are kids being transferred. That should only happen occasionally. There needs to be a review and some careful consideration before you take a young person from the juvenile court where they can get treatment and services where we see our recidivism rates dropping, where they're going to get individualized attention that, that actually can help them become productive citizens, as opposed to moving them to adult court, where, where really none of that's going to happen. Kevin Kane, your response to what Chris Rapilla was saying, that there have been um, some discretionary um, transfers once these hearings have taken place? There have been a few, and I suspect you're about right with 11, Chris. Uh, the problem is the change in the law before... The state had, in order to, to have a court transfer to the adult court, the state had to prove that it was in the best interest of the uh, of the child or uh, in the best interest of the public. We removed that. The legislature removed that and provided we now have to prove it's in the best interest of the child. It is. We have had a very few transfers. I agree we shouldn't be transferring a lot of cases to the adult court. I agree that we need to keep most kids in the juvenile court where services are available. I just think we need to loosen that transfer up a little bit because there are serious cases which we are unable to get transferred uh, in which uh, these kids are, are not being detained. They may be getting some services, uh, which makes it all the more tragic. And, and then the, the, they get out and, and engage in in in. in in, in numerous incidents of fairly serious behavior. Stealing a car is not necessarily a danger to the public. You assume somebody steals a car, they're going to drive it and drive it safely, and nobody's going to get hurt, and it's a car theft. And, and, but the problem is we have uh, too many kids who are doing what kids do under the impulsive, uh, under the circumstances and the, their impulsive nature. We were all kids at once. 
all of a sudden they're fleeing and hurting somebody. And we can't get just a car theft itself, a person who's stolen a couple of cars, isn't necessarily a threat to public safety in and of itself. Um, you mentioned services that are uh, in the community to help some of these kids that keep getting in trouble uh, with the law, um, Kevin Kane. But are some of these services, are they no longer there because of, of budget concerns? And we keep hearing about how programs are closing. Um, the judicial branch has less staff. I mean, how much of that relates to why you might see some of these kids reoffending? Could be a, uh, could be a lot, and that's one of the problems. Is 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 we do have to look at the realities of the budget today and the services that are needed. The previous segment you you uh, just had on was, was a good example of that. Uh, we do need to provide services for these kids while while they're in the process of growing up. The problem is we also need to p- protect the public and the kids themselves from the consequences of 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 their impulsive nature and the acts that they do. Uh, Chris Rapillo, uh, could you respond to my question about uh, services? What actually is out there to help some of these juvenile delinquents? I, mean, I think that's a twofold issue. There's, there's definitely been budget cuts, and there's fewer services to go around. You know, we've seen the spike. Um, or, well, I mean, there, is a, there, there has been an increase in car cases. I think there's data to back that up, and we've seen the high-profile stuff in the summer when there haven't been as many job programs and as many things for kids to do. But I also so think our system has changed. As we've made our system smaller, the kids that are there are the kids that need the most intensive services. So what I think the system hasn't done is catch up with itself. And that because you, these are kids... You know, we're doing a better job with the lower level kids. These are kids, you know, who, who we've seen, kids who have moved from the child welfare system into the juvenile justice system, and they need different services than, than what we've traditionally provided. I think the system hasn't caught up with our higher end kids. We do an excellent job of diverting lower level first time or second time offenders out, and we're having good results with that, as you can see by the recidivism rates that keep dropping. But the system's got to focus on these kids because... Locking them up doesn't make them better. Eventually, they're young people. They're going to go back into their communities. And the earlier that we can intervene and put services into place that make them productive and successful at home, that's when everybody's going to be safer. I want to bring back into the discussion Abby Anderson, Executive Director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. Um, I believe all of you are members of the Juvenile Justice Oversight Policy and Oversight Committee, or JPOC, that meets regularly talking about uh, reforms and changes that need to be made, including what's going to happen to the Connecticut Juvenile Training School. We heard both uh, Kevin Kane and Chris Rapillo uh, uh, Abby, talk about these high-end kids. What happens to them when the training school does close? I mean, what are some of the alternatives? Right. So I think one of the things that's that's most important um, that was just said, and I thought Kevin actually um, illuminated it really, really well, um, we're not going to go backwards, right? We're not going to start putting more kids in cells or more kids in detention. A, we don't have any data that ever shows it's worked in Connecticut. And nationally, we know the outcomes are horrific for public safety and for the young people themselves. And so, as Chris said, we need to move forward. And what moving forward means is doing those alternative programs. So there is um, a request for proposals on the street right now out of the Department of Children and Families. What does it look like to have, um, you know, two or three facilities that are more therapeutic? They're still locked facilities for that very small number of boys who really need and and girls, but CJTS's boys specifically. Um and maybe, you know, 10 to 12 beds. So you're not creating these these warehouses of where you have 50, you know, I mean, let's remember CJTS was built based on a maximum security prison for 240 kids. Um, 
and it, it was never needed. And we don't actually know. You know, you still hear stories of, of the boys who are in CJTS now. Yeah, that some of them have committed very serious offenses, but they also are kids who have been, you know, in and out of child welfare services since they were very small, significant child, um, significant mental health issues. Some of them have significant psychiatric issues. We don't know what to do with them, and we've gotten frustrated, and so putting them in CJTS is, is what we're doing now. The kinds of alternatives are exactly what Fran Sherman was talking about at the top of the show, individualized, intensive programs and services that are wrapped around these kids and their families and their communities. Maybe sometimes they have to be out of home. Maybe briefly they have to be um, in a locked facility out of home. But all of these kids and all of these young people are coming back to their communities. Even if you're at CJTS now, you're there for six months, you're coming home. Our question is, what are we doing while this child is detained, whether it's in detention or in CJTS? What's going to be different the day they come out? What happens while they're there? And all we have seen so far, um, national research and, and locally, we can't see that there's a benefit to them being there where something good happens and then their their actions are a lot better on the way when they come out on a, on a consistent basis. So what do we do? And if there is a period where a person needs to be removed to their community, how do we ensure that what we're doing there is making them better? and not worse. We've got just a minute. I want to go back to Chief State's Attorney uh, Kevin Kane. Because uh, the governor wants to see the training school closed by July 1, 2018, what's a viable alternative that you think will work for some of these high-end kids if, in fact, that's how it's being used to transfer certain kids to this kind of setting? Well, we need to provide for uh, an alternative. Uh, Some of these kids need to be confined for the time being, hopefully they'll, they'll they'll be benefited during the course of their confinement. I agree when they come out, we need to make them better than they were when they went in, not worse. But we shouldn't be closing that facility until we have an alternative in place that'll work. Doing that, I think, will be a threat to public safety, and we've seen too many tragedies. And these are the tragedies not only for the, the citizens who are hurt, but for the kids themselves. We'll have to leave it there. Kevin Kane, thank you so much. Again, Connecticut's chief state's attorney. Uh, Also, Chris Rapillo, acting deputy chief of the public defender at Connecticut's Office of the Public Defender. Thanks, Chris. And Abby Anderson, executive director of the Connecticut Juvenile Justice Alliance. I want to thank Lydia Brown, who produced today's show. Special thanks to Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.